Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, gang, we are here, believe it or not, at our very last week of our semester. We're grateful for those of you that have been with us the whole time. You made it. And I trust that the information was helpful, but I'm quite sure there have been things that needed some clarification, probably issues that you've dealt with in your evangelism that have not come up, maybe some methodological questions about what do you do when or when, you know, how do we know when to back off, whatever it might be, your question regarding how to defend the faith. I will do my best tonight to field questions. That's the purpose of our night here together a question and answer session. So let me pray, and then we'll just jump right into it. We have anything I welcome within the, the, the realm of what we've been discussing. And I don't mean the individual topics. I just mean the whole concept of defending the faith. And we'll open it up to your questions. So get ready. I've got Nathan and Pastor Rod on microphones that are going to be coming around. And if you've never been at a Q&A with us, I try to encourage you while one person is on a microphone asking a question, I would like the other mic to be flagged down so we can have a bit of a antiphonal question and answer and get those mics going so there's no delay between questions. That would be helpful. Okay, can we pray together? Let's pray. God, we know we stand in a long tradition of Christians that on this planet have been dealing with hostile opponents to Christ, to our declaration, our propositional declaration of the truth of what we read in scripture as we try to present that as ambassadors to our generation. We've had the same experience in our day as every other generation of Christian has had. And so we want to at least find that solidarity with the church in the past. We want to think about the good fight that we try to fight to tear down every argument, every lofty idea that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, knowing that heaven and hell are at stake, or better yet, life intended the way that you designed it, and the judgment for our sin. Those are the issues, and God, we know that that's important. We love the people around us that are on our prayer list. We'd like to see them saved, and whatever it might be that relates to that tonight, I pray that there would be a good mix and a a good variety of questions from the issues that we face as Christians internally in sharing our faith all the way down to just the, the, the stumpers, the questions that are hard for us that maybe we need a new insight on or some kind of perspective or just any kind of biblical response to. I pray that the questions would be helpful, a great cap on the end of this 13-week series, and I pray it would be helpful. So God, manage our time here. Of course, be active in my mind and my mouth. Let those work together in responding to these questions and just give us your grace in this unscripted time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we got two microphones. We just want you to ask your questions. We'll do our best to answer them. And if we don't have, well, whatever, I won't say that. We'll we'll have plenty. All right. I assume. I trust. Extremely good opportunity. Now, when I invite non-Christian friends to our Christmas events, uh, you know, the way they come is for fun of it because they have really not accepted Jesus in the sense. They have really not. So what should I tell them, you know, if I can get a paragraph from you, that will be wonderful. Yeah. So that the real purpose will be served, you know. So the real what? Real purpose, you know, I would like them to change their mind and sure. accept Jesus. And, but right. here it becomes only entertainment for them. Yeah, right, right. That's a great question. When we have opportunities at the church, whether it's Fall Fest or the Christmas musical that takes place this weekend, 
it would be good for you to frame your invitation with some kind of statement about the fact that you know I believe the truth of the Bible and of, of God and Christ is revealed in the Bible and I want you to come to my church and I want you to hear about that because I take this seriously. It's a fun play, it's a fun event, but could you come and at least be receptive to what's said there? Tie it to something more than I, I go to the YMCA and they've got a aquatic uh, program going on here and come and watch it. So tie your own commitment to Christ to the invitation that I take this seriously. It's like the disciples that said, come and see. Here's Jesus. I want you to come and see. And that's what we're doing. We call it corporate evangelism around here that we're trying to have you introduce them to a bunch of people that believe in Christ. And this weekend, our kids will entertain us. And I I can't get around that. That's what it is. I mean, they're entertained. They like it. They clap. There's jokes. There's scripts and all of that. But we think it's worthwhile because we get people in the door and uh, they get to hear a message that's embedded in all the, the fun of the musical. And then I try to get up and you need to be praying for your pastor this week to try and give in the very short amount of time I have some kind of appeal that will get them to the next step of inquiring about Christ or maybe closing the deal in some people's lives. But I'd like to encourage you to tie your invitation to the fact that, you know, I'd like you to come to my church because I believe the things that we talk about at this church. I'd love for you to come and hear it. It'll be a great time. It'll also be revealing a bit more about me. Learn about me by coming to my church. Not a bad way to say it. Okay, good. Yeah, while there's a question going on, make sure, Nathan, on this side, you get the mic into the hands of someone else. So wherever we can get a question going, Jeff's going to ask a question here. So flag down uh, Nathan over here, and then we'll have a question queued up. He'll work while I'm talking. Yes. Pastor Mike, I've often wondered, uh, you've made reference to sharing the gospel, and I I think I've, um, Ray Comfort has said, for 40 years he hasn't failed to share the gospel every single day, I think he said. But I've often wondered about you and your experience, and it might be encouraging to hear just a little bit about um, how your evangelism goes and how often it is. But here's my question. Um, When you have opportunity to share with people, what are some things, good things that you have found out that are Ways to in, get in spiritual discussion with them. And the other thing is some people talk about being led by God and they feel that they should go up to somebody or they feel that they don't. But if we pray for opportunities, everyone around us is fair game. Everyone that doesn't don't know him. So, but your experience, your questions that you, that are good icebreakers, way to break into conversation, because that's the hard part, turning something. Right. Okay, yeah, you. and I think the turning point well, it's a very personal question, but when it gets down to my personal experience, so often when people have a conversation with me, just like I'm assuming when they have a conversation with you, they want to learn what you do for a living. So I've got this awkward revelation that I'm, I'm a preacher. And sometimes I'll have fun with that and, and get them interested. I'll say, I'm an ecclesiologist, you know, and they'll say, well, what is, what is that? And, and we get a chance to talk about what I do. But when that's not on the table, and sometimes it's more of a casual discussion, we often use, I say we because... Carlin's seen this many times in our evangelism is church as a way to start a conversation. And it's not unusual for us to ask the question, well, what church do you go to? And then we start a conversation about church. And most people, well, I haven't been to church in a long time. And that begins our conversation. A more forthright way or a way to take it to the next level is for me to ask them an open-ended question about what they believe. What do you believe happens to you when you die? What do you believe? Who, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you think about him? So, you know, I, I want to be always having those kinds of open-ended questions on the 
at the ready. I mean, it doesn't take, those aren't deep questions, but they're the questions that I think can open up conversations about Christ. And there are some situations I always feel compelled to share it. You know, when you're traveling, you're stuck with people, you know, every time I get in a cab, I mean, it's rare that I don't just start talking about Christianity because I'm asking them questions. Where are you from? What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts about America or life or religion? Or are you, are you a Christian? Do you claim to be a Christian? So people will share their opinions and pretty quickly you find out whether they want to shut you down or not. And I know I want to be respectful about that. And sometimes when I feel like the door is being shut, I will at least throw in something like, you know, the Bible best-selling book of all time. Whenever you get a chance to read it, I'd like you to spend some time reading it. You know, go online and read the Bible a little bit. Don't believe what other people say about it. Read it for yourself. I often tell people if I have an opportunity, I would love for you to read in Luke. It's just my go-to book, and it has been long before I preached through it recently. But I'll say start in chapter 9 of Luke, read to chapter 24, go back to chapter 1, read to chapter 24, and I'd love to talk to you about it. If it's someone, a stranger, and I don't know, I just will give them that challenge and then leave it at that. I carry in the back of my car a bunch of books, and um, I, I'll give them away. I, I'm always going to help and stop to help someone unless I'm coming to church to preach or something. And my wife can tell you this. And, and those are always easy open doors. I'll see a guy who can't start his car. I will pull over and I will, you know, help jump his car. I carry jumper cables and my car, I don't think is going to need it, but I, I always stop and had a great story from someone maybe be here tonight. I helped a guy start his car few weeks back. And uh, of course, I'm going to share the gospel with him. I'm going to earn the right to be heard just by helping him. And then I will talk to him about the fact that where do you, what do you think about God? What do you think about religion? We start a conversation and I'll leave them with a book. I like, uh, why the Bible? I mean, these are books I wrote. I get a good price on them. So I, I give those out liberally. Why the Bible? What do you think about the Bible? Do you think it's true? That little read is helpful. I keep a stack of exploring the gospels in my trunk. I have those in our house. Anytime someone comes to our house for anything, it can be, you know, we've got a stack of them in Spanish if they don't know our language. And we'll say, here, would you please? Carlin's got out on our on our uh, landing there where we put the mail. Invites for Tustin, Huntington Beach, San Juan Spanish Church, and our church. And we, you're not going to come to our house without getting at least an invitation to church. So start the conversation. Church for us is a good entry point. A lot of people have stories about church. It's the, It's a good opener. And if I can't get anywhere with them, I'm talking about what if you die, where are you going to go? At least I can say, would you please come and come to our church? And I never tell them I'm the pastor. So it's not like I'm saying, come to the church that I pastor. I'm doing it as though I'm you. I don't, they don't know who I am. Sometimes they come and find out that's the guy that invited me on the, on the stage. So I had that happen recently with a waiter who showed up and uh, said, you invited me to church. And uh, yeah, so whatever. I, waiters, people at the gas station, Anyone that works at our house on anything. I have an old house, so we have a lot of people working on things. I need a framer right now. I need, I need work. So come, come to my house and send your non-Christian workers to my house. Traveling, all of those situations. Yeah. I can't say like D.L. Moody and Ray Comfort, I share the gospel every single day. I certainly, you know, I'm often ensconced here in our church and most of our pastors are saved. So I <laughs> have, a hard, have a hard time finding live targets. Here. All right, Nathan. Yeah. Hi there. Um, thank you again for the uh, several weeks of this. So occasionally I get the, I mentioned this to you, the um, accepting the Christian message to some is more along the lines of not avoiding hell because of your sin, but becoming more about pushing membership than about pushing uh, 
punishment for sin. And Re- gonna, reframe that statement because I'm not sure I follow. Yeah, up. I'm trying to reframe it. In my no, head. that's all right. So, in other words, is, is hell a punishment for sin or a punishment for lack of membership? Is what uh, now I will say it's, it's punishment for sin. Of course, but if the sin is easily swept away with accepting Christ, they come back with so it really is a punishment for lack of membership, not a punishment for sin. Yeah, and I, I guess that's a fair objection because it's the truth. You get allied with Christ. Here's the biblical words: If you get in Christ, you have all of your sins forgiven. And in that regard, you can be the thief on the cross. You join the club, you get your sins forgiven. I understand that objection, but it's the objection I tried to bring up two weeks ago in the sermon. It's the objection of grace, because that's the problem. Religion is, I can get in this philosophical religious group that gets me on the track, and then I can earn my way to God, though they would never put it that way, as opposed to, no, join the club, it puts you in Christ, your sins get paid for. It is, I, I can't avoid the appearance of membership saves you. And I know what you're saying, not membership to the church, obviously. I, I need to, I can't hear you. Go ahead. It's, it's more of an objection of the church is using this as a way to bring people in. Oh, yeah. As opposed to a, a safety. Sure. Uh, avoiding punishment sin kind of angle. But what militates against that is your conscience. And that's the good thing I always have working on my side to counter that argument. You have a conscience that, as Romans 2 says, is condemning you when you do wrong. And you may have worked hard to suppress that, so it, does, it only works when you do really newly wrong things. But you have something that produces the guilt and the shame that I'm trying to say deserves a punishment. That's what guilt is. And I'm trying to get you to realize that is the right feeling. That feeling is right. So we got to deal with that problem. And in that regard, they can look at it as you're just trying to drum up support for your organization by scaring us into the membership. And I'm saying, okay... The fear that you have that you're saying I'm creating out of whole cloth is being testified to by your internal compass. You have a sense that wrong is wrong, and you think justice demands payment. I know you think that in everyone else's life. Which, by the way, is the argument of Romans 2. The argument of Romans 2 is if you can, in your mind, feel a sense of injustice about wrong being unbridled. If you can say someone doesn't get punished and they should be, Paul just says, turn that back on yourself. That is the thing that should lead you to say, I'm storing up wrath for myself for the day of God's judgment. So I like to remind people, you have a great advocate in natural theology when you're sharing the gospel because someone has an internal gospel that keeps saying to them, you got a problem that needs to be solved. So I will concede that's what it feels like. And the critic can say that. You're trying to get people in here, if this is the essence of your question, by scaring us all into not being punished. You, you, you're scaring us all into that I might be punished and I need to get that fixed. I'll go, okay, I'll give you that. Because how else do we describe the fact that the thief on the cross or the man on death row gets in and so does the six, seven, eight-year-old kid that's grown up in the church and repents? And I, I just think, yeah, that's the point. Membership has its privileges. And that is, that is what we're saying. Because if you remove membership, if you remove, and again, you know how I'm using this term right now, right? If you remove in, in, embodiment in Christ, alliance with Christ, we don't have a hope. So yeah, there are certain objections you have to concede. And that's one that it looks that way, but it's true. And your conscience bears witness. You got to get in the lifeboat. And you see that by the fact that you feel guilty sometimes. Is that good enough? Did that get close? Give me more. That's fine. Let's, let's do more on that one. 
It isn't so much that they're feeling the guilt of the sin. They're just feeling the pressure to join a club. Well, you should. You should feel the pressure to join the club. I'm sitting in a lifeboat. The boat is sinking. Your inner ear says the ship is listing. This is not stable ground. I'm saying get in the club. And I am saying that. Get in the club. But the club has the answer. So I am asking you to get in the ecclesia, the called out ones. I want you to get in this group. So in that regard, I get that. But, it, you know, it's, it's like me inviting someone to church. They find out I'm the pastor. Well, you want me to be in your church so I can give offerings so you can have money in your pocket. Okay, I, I understand that's the way it looks. I understand that's how the way it works. I don't get paid unless you do that. And I'm saying, but that doesn't erase the need or the fact that you need to be in this case, in the body of Christ. Just to be clear, of course, I completely agree. I know you it's do. Just the, uh, <clears throat> it's just the, uh, the there's this, uh, folks are saying, I'm, I'm okay. I, I guess this just might be people who are just not, God hasn't worked on, they're not all that receptive yet. Right. But I have several people in my life at work and whatnot, they're like, you're not about, your thing isn't about um, salvation from sin, it's about joining your thing. Right. Nope. Yep. And, and I would say that is, as a lot of apologetics is, an excuse, and we're trying to help them get a sense of why that is an excuse because it makes sense and my little illustration and i know i overuse it is this works in our illustration of a sinking ship and a lifeboat that's what it looks like from your perspective but it's right and it's not my motive that we need you in a club i don't care which church you go to i don't care if you're part of our group but if you're saying well you want us to wear the christian brand instead of the hindu label well yeah okay you're right because it's the only way to get out of the problem okay we might be back to to that yeah. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. This question is pertaining more towards groups such as Jehovah's Witness, Mormons. Yeah. How would you overcome these groups who have their own authority, right? So right. You're, you're already at disadvantage talking to them yep. because they're referring to yes. their authority. Yep. So they're not going to listen to you, yep. especially, you know, the gospel and the Bible and the Holy Word. So what are some pointers, some tips you can give us on how to overcome those types of, of groups? Great. You know? Here's what I would say. Here's the problem, and I don't want to be at all dismissive, and I don't want to chide us, but it's like us sitting around with a bunch of kazoos playing a song that we're supposed to play. Mary had a little lamb, and we're all with our kazoos, and we're playing the right song, and we're there in our Hawaiian shirts or our shorts and our flip-flops, and we're playing our song, and we're going, well, this is a song you got to play to be right with God. And over here is a group of people in tuxedos with a 120-piece orchestra, fastidious about every note. They know all the Latin terms that it's on the score. They are well-versed in what they're doing. They're playing the wrong song. And we're walking over to, as they walk up to us and go join our group, we're going, oh, no, no, we're playing the right song. And then they want to argue about music theory and the circle of fifths and, you know, and, and, and Bach and Brahms. And we're like, well, I don't know about all that, but I just know we're playing the right song. And I think all of that to try and illustrate off the cuff that we're not all that prepared for their apologetic. Their apologetic is they know what they're doing. Jehovah Witnesses, you mentioned. Every Jehovah Witness, if they're going to go out and they're going to go door to door and share the gospel, quote unquote, their gospel, false gospel, they're going to study their apologetics book, reasoning from the scriptures. And they're going to read that little book and they're going to prepare everything in response to that. They got a hierarchy and a chain that if you, if you, they stump you and you don't, they don't get the answer right from the book. They're going to, they're going to T.O. this thing up the chain. And I mean, they're ready. They know. And, and I think most Christians that I preach to even, a lot of men even read the Bible through five times. So we don't know. And I'm going to say, you're right. You've got the right gospel if you've got the biblical gospel and you're sitting under the teaching of a Bible teaching 
gospel preaching preacher, but you're not prepared to have an interaction with the guy in the tuxedo with his viola on his chin. They, they know what they're doing. I mean, Mormons, they go out and do their year mission. How many of you have gone for a year and done nothing but evangelism? Most of you haven't. When I got thrown out as an 18-year-old doing evangelism door-to-door, I learned a ton. And I had to do it for a semester, knocking on doors, opening the door, and having to defend my Christianity. That was one of the most pivotal years for me to learn apologetics and to be able to start to begin to learn to defend what I believe. That is not the experience of most people in in evangelical, Bible-teaching, gospel-preaching churches. And those guys are prepping. And I think it was Walter Martin used to say, right? I mean, they do way more for a lie than we would do for a tr- the truth. I'm, I'm botching his old line, but that is my fear. Most of us cannot defend the Trinity. You better be able to defend the Trinity if you're going to talk to a Jehovah Witness that's been trained in their teaching about why the Trinity was a made-up doctrine of the fourth century church and borrowed from paganism. And they can show you all of these, these historic extra biblical examples of triunity or at least, you know, tri-deity. And so Christianity just picked that up from paganism. Most people go, well, 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 yeah, I don't know. And they'll say, well, here's your Bible, prove the Trinity. They can't. So I guess what I'm saying is we got to do more work. We have to do, what books are you reading? How are you studying systematic theology? What do you know about biblical theology? How are you digging deeper in what you believe? And that's why it's sad that we have a church that's so large and yet we only get a few hundred people out, a couple hundred people out to Compass Night. And I'm not saying, I shouldn't say that. We have a lot of people download it. But there's, we've got to at least start there. Somebody, everyone should be signing up for a class at CBI to learn Christian worldview or systematic theology. And you may sit through this class and do it, but no one's asking you to regurgitate any of it, to recite it, to see if on a paper, on a three, four page paper, at least you can articulate this through your own words without plagiarism, what you are defending. So we need to do work harder. But yes, fundamentally, the problem is another authority. Like the Roman Catholic Church says. Roman Catholic Church says the magisterium, the official teaching of the church, church history, and the Bible are three legs of one stand, and you cannot have one without the others. So these are all authorities. The Bible's an authority, magisterium, and, 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 the, and the history of the church. So what the Pope says and what the leaders and cardinals say and what the church history has, has proven and what the Bible says, and then Jehovah Witnesses. Well, we've got the Watchtower and Tract Society that is the, the interpreter of biblical authority. So you got the Bible and you got the Watchtower and Tract Society. Well, then you got the Mormons, the Doctrines and Covenants, the Book of Mormon. You've got the books of the authoritative prophetic words that's come, and even even Adventists. We've got the spirit of prophecy in Ellen G. White, and we've got the Bible. We're all sitting here as Protestants, I trust, saying, no, Scripture alone. But we have a hard time defending our faith because these guys are looking to a systematized other authority and just reading off the script. And it's so well written in the sense that it's detailed enough to answer the things that you're going to say to try to defend your Bible that we just throw up our hands because we're playing our kazoo, we're playing the right song, but we're not as sophisticated in thinking through our positions. I would say we need to do more evangelism. You're going to get better at not only knowing what you believe, but defending why you believe it. And you got to do more reading. You got to read the Bible more. Most people haven't read the Bible more than a couple times through. Most Christians who claim to be Christians have never read the Bible through in its entirety one time. So yes, I think the bottom line is what Tyndale said, trying to translate the Bible in English, the plowboy will know more than all 
of the bishops in Rome, if he just has the Bible in his own language, learns it and studies it, it's the, it's the truth from God, and that's what we're trying to defend. The problem is, I don't know that we're as well-versed as we ought to be. What's going to get you better? Studying, practice, and God can get you better to de- you know get you better at defending these things. And the cheat sheets, we have a few, but most people don't avail themselves to it. When all the Jehovah Witnesses are reading out of reasoning from the Scripture to defend their heretical doctrines, you know, here's Ron Rhodes that comes along, who's spoken here at Compass Night for us before, and written a book that answers everything in their book by having you look at how the Scripture is being twisted in reasoning with the Scriptures. So reasoning from the Scriptures with the Jehovah Witnesses, great. But how many of us have even read that? And we're trying to argue with a a JW at our, our door on a Saturday when you got cake batter on your apron and you, you're, you're just no match for them. So we need a little more work. And we got to slow the conversation down. If you get to slow the conversation down, and here's what I would suggest for people with other authorities. Every cult group that has the Bible as one of their authorities, they're all, always going to try and say, well, I'm not going to say it's wrong. I'm just going to tell you what you should think about those things in the Bible. And I'm going to say, I start every conversation with a cultist by saying, listen, I want to become a Jehovah Witness today. I want to become a Mormon today. I want to be a Catholic today. But you're going to have to prove to me that what the things in the Bible say end up at the same place that Taz Russell, Judge Rutherford, Joseph Smith, the leaders of the Mormon church, the, the, the elders and, and apostles, or the, the bishops and the cardinals say. You're going to have to show me that that's what the Bible teaches. I want the same commitment from you that you're willing to become a Bible-believing Christian. So let's start our conversation with an agreement that we're ready to change sides. Now, that's a scary thing for everyone to say if they're not ready to defend the truth, but that's how I start the conversation. I'll become a Jehovah Witness today. You just got to prove to me that that is the accurate representation of the revelation of God, and of course you can't. But I want them to say the same thing. And you got to ditch your authority if your authority is contradicting God's word. And some religions, cultists, cult groups, are, are working really hard to undermine your confidence in the Bible. Look at Mormonism, look at JWs, and even Catholics, but mostly those two that you started with, Mormons and JWs, they will work hard to undermine your confidence in the Bible. We can't really know. It's been translated a lot of times. They start sounding like non-Christians in undermining the scriptures. Yeah, I don't know. That was a rambling answer, but is that somewhere, it gets to where you were starting? Yeah. Good evening, Pastor Hi, good. Uh, this is kind of a long question, so stay with me. I did write it down. All right. I think the question can relate to a lot of different people, but uh, there's a specific example that I have. I have a neighbor that was raised in the Coptic church who knows a lot of the answers he does, but has a lot of bad theology. Yeah. I invite him to church routinely, and he has no desire to attend. With that said, he asked me about six months ago about the huge parties that I have every Friday night and why he wasn't invited. So I invited him to our small group, and he comes every Friday night for the food. <laughs> For the food. For the food. Um, he stays. He quietly sits on the couch for the study. But it seems like we're not really getting anywhere. I've talked with him multiple times until 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, he's retired and lonely. He's not in great health. So he's open to talking because he's looking for friendship. But at what point do I stop inviting him? Or how do I encourage him without pushing him? Or do I push him? Do I get more pointed? Do I let up? Do I, you know, advise about the urgency? Do you have any way to advise about that? Or do I just have him keep coming Friday nights, sitting 
sitting on the couch quietly, is that enough? Should I be tent with that? And also, what about the person that is willing to come to church that on any given week, but they don't really take it seriously? It's a social commitment. You know, they don't stress the urgency. They're not that interested. Maybe they nod off a little bit. We go to lunch afterwards. We ask questions. They, uh, yeah, and kind of ho-hum through it. But, you know, they're willing to come and they may claim Christianity, but once again, their Christian doctrine is something that is very much in question. We hear them make statements and you say that's way out of line. I have two different answers for both of those contexts. The first one I would say, and I'm imagining something that may not be accurate, but if, if I've got someone who I know is not a Christian in my small group and the way you described him, I would definitely offer a relationship, a connection, but I would say at some point in a small group, listen, doesn't sound like we're on the same page here about the gospel and about the truth of the Bible and the Coptic faith. I mean, it's a compli- that's a complicated distinction there. And depends on who you're talking to and how seriously they take their Coptic faith and the authorities of the Coptic church. But go ahead. He's Egyptian. He's out of the Coptic church, immigrated 35 years ago. Does he go to the Coptic church here in Orange County? No longer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But did at some point. Right. And, and I get that. And there's a lot of Egyptians that are cultural Coptic Christians. Absolutely. Right. Because they're distinguishing themselves from Islam, which is so dominant in Egypt. So I, I understand that. It's a lot like people today saying I'm Catholic and they, never, you know, they don't go to the Catholic church. It's a label for them. But I would say if I got a non-Christian in my group that I feel like is just connecting for the sake of the, of the fellowship and all of that, or the fellowship, the friendship and the food, I would probably move him on to a, hey, we'd love to talk to you over the mailbox. We'd love to have you to dinner when we can. But this small group, not the setting because this is a small group for people that are responding to the sermon, studying the Bible. And I would want my small group to feel an openness that we got Christians here. And if it's not all Christians, I at least got a non-Christian who's moving toward Christianity because he's hungry to learn what we're all about. So that's why small groups, I think, should be open to non-Christians or a spouse, for instance, that's not saved, but's willing to come. Okay, I get that. But the guy down the street who just comes and eats and we, we feel that here's a guy that's not saved and he's not interested in not making any progress, I would move him on. Okay, and there's a lot of mitigating factors that may be different depending on your situation, and I may not even imagine this scenario right. As to the church, I'd have a different answer. I would say this. You come to the church, we're not really doing anything different here because you're here. We're going to do what we do, not going to affect the way we pray, not going to affect the way we preach, not going to affect the way we worship. So we're going to allow you to be what I would, to use the old line from the Reformed and Puritan people, I would allow you to be in the arena of the means of grace, which is the preaching of the word. And when you watch baptisms or when you let the plate pass by in communion, fine. I think you're in a dangerous place because the daggers of truth are flying all around you. And like a guy on a board with the daggers, he's, he's dodging them. But I'm thinking one day you're either going to get so tweaked and ticked off by what you're hearing that you're going to say, I'm not going to go to that church anymore because the truth is going to be too convicting. He doesn't want to respond to. Or maybe God's going to use the preaching of the word to convict his heart. So I'm not going to move him on. I'm going to look at the parable of Christ and say, we got the wheat and the tares. And I think in the assembled church, I don't think that small group, the intimacy of sharpening one another in those small contexts, but in the context of the larger church, the church assembled on the weekend here at Compass, for instance, okay, non-Christians coming, great. We're not changing anything because you're here. But you know what? Probably my friend in a small group sharing their prayer requests about their struggles in Bible, probably going to start to affect what he shares or she shares when this guy's here and everyone knows the guy's not saved and not making any progress toward Christ. But in the church, it's the wheat and tares. We got real Christians here. It's what we call in theology and ecclesiology. We have the visible church 
It's made up of the real church and the tares, the weeds. And Jesus said, let them grow up together until the time of the harvest, then God's going to sort that out. So I've had people in this church that I know are not saved that have sat there and I preached to them for decades. I preached to some people in this church for almost, I don't know, pushing 30 years. I came to South County in 88. And some of them came from where I was before here and some of them aren't saved. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm not going to move you on. I mean, you want to sleep through the sermons or whatever, I, it, I, I think, unless you're a disruption. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. I think at some point, a non-Christian in my small, in the intimacy of a small group in my home is going to be a disruption, even if it's a silent disruption of people not feeling like we got the team here. I can let my hair down spiritually. And he may not fit that bill, but I think at some point he'll become that putting an apprehension, you know, a, a, a causing apprehension in the hearts of people. So that's my answer. Go ahead. And so is that a survey question to ask small group? Is that a decision no. that's made? No, the leader makes it. If you're the leader, I just get a sense that, yeah, when we're sharing prayer requests around the circle, just he doesn't fit in. He's not with us. He's not regenerate. He's not a Christian. This small group is really a time for our Christians or someone who I think is moving toward Christianity. This guy doesn't buy it, and he's just there for the food and the friendship. Okay, well, we can have you over for the barbecue and the 4th of July, and you, let's go golfing together every now and then, or whatever he wants to do. I would love, love him, but at some point, I'm going to move him on from my small group. And I think that's going to be based on your discernment of how long this guy hasn't been making any progress. And I'm assuming he's sitting in the circle. He's not behind. He's not on the second-tier couch in your <laughs> den, right? He's in the circle. And what about prayer request times and all that? Does he share? Yeah, so he's asked that we pray for his health, you know, in, in certain situations. So he's asked prayer requests on yeah. that side of it. Well, my non-Christian neighbor asks me to pray all the time for his health. Right. But I wouldn't want him in my small group. And it's not because I'm being exclusionary. I want him in, in my small group if you're, you're interested in what we do, moving toward Christianity. But if you're just there, because it's really cool, Carlin makes some great snacks, and I like it when people pray for my health, that's not what this is for. You want to come to church every week? Fine. Come to church every week. Yeah. Good question. Hi. So you started off by saying, uh, encouraging questions about when to share the gospel, when to back off. So we're entering this season where we're going to be seeing family and friends uh, that are not believers. And um, and they know that you are. And so how do you apply that pressure, that sense of urgency, and then know when to back off? The wall that goes up kind of sucks all the fun out of the occasion. And it's just like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And and not feel like you're walking on eggshells, too. So how? How do, you, how do you balance that? I'm glad you said it because some people think it's unique to them and everyone in this room feels that. We can't have the kind of Christmas celebrations we'd like to have. You want that, have it with your small group without the Coptic guy there. Um, but when you bring your family together, you got non-Christians there. And unless you've been an undercover Christian, your very presence is convicting to them. I'm going to go to Christmas stuff with extended family whenever that is next week coming up. And me being there is a problem. And I hope it's not because of my personality. It's, just, it's because of Christ, right? It's like, yeah, here he is. And it's, an, and it's a conviction. And so it, we can't have the celebration we want. It's one of the reasons I preached the sermon I preached last week. It was kind of a veiled way to say, yeah, here we go, Christians again into the Christmas season. It's going to be hard. And, and it is hard. So I would say, number one, you're normal. That's normal. I would not underestimate, and we often do, what your presence is. They know you're a Christian. You've talked about your Christianity before. They feel it. That's what makes it icy and awkward. And here's what I do, and I think all of us probably should do more of, and I should do more of it as well. But when I pray for the non-Christians in my family in particular, 
I feel like, God, please bring people into their lives that aren't me. And I pray for those people to be reaching out to them the way I reach out to my neighbor. You know, I had some progress, a little bit of progress with my next door neighbor this last week. Carla and I were talking about that and, and, and it was good. And it was like, okay, well, I'm hoping, who knows, maybe there's some Christian, his family's been praying for me to share with him. So I, I would pray a lot for that. And then I would say this, let's say homosexuality comes up in your at the dinner discussion. Probably no one is confused about your position on that. So all you have to do is look up from your turkey and you've spoken volumes because they know where you're coming from. And that's what makes it icy. That's what makes it hard. Is there time to speak? I guess when they call you out on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know where I'm coming from on this, right? God was clear about this. So I can't make those Christmas times what we want them to be. I can at least say, be the light that God has called you to be. And that means that you don't compromise and you trust a lot of what you've done in the past where you've shared the gospel when you were on vacation or when you were at their home for whatever. And now it's Christmas time, not the time to stand up and share the gospel. Although I always get asked to do the prayer and at least try to do something with that. Try not to preach a long sermon in my prayer, but there's something biblical even about that. Jesus in John 11, he prayed at the, at the death of Lazarus. And it, in his prayer, it says he prayed this not because of himself or God. He prayed this for those that were there listening. So there's a time to do a little bit of preaching in your praying. And I don't know if they ask you to pray or not, or your husband to pray, but those can be opportunities to at least, I mean, think about it. I'm, what, when is the date? I'm about, what is the 12th? We're a long way from Christmas. I've already thought about the prayer I'm going to have to pray with non-Christian family around. And I've thought about it. Okay, here it comes. So try to utilize those if you can and know that a lot of times they've got every reason to not like you because of your Christianity Try to prove them wrong, not by laughing at their bad jokes or getting drunk with them, but, you know, try to prove them wrong by caring about them. I find non-Christians, right, they're not used to people that really genuinely care. And and for you just to spend time taking interest in them and not telling your stories and, and loving them by how you act respectfully toward them, that goes a long, long way. Because most non-Christians get around and just talk, and it's usually self-promoting and about themselves. And I think uh, we go a long way in representing Christ well and being a really selfless family member. And you know what? I've had some experience. And again, I don't want to get too personal, but a lot of those years, I can think of things just saying, let me do that, or let me help with that, or can I take care of that for you? Like you compound the years of that, it starts to change people's receptivity. Not that I'm having any good success necessarily, but yeah. Yeah. Earn the right to be heard. Right. And to me, think about, even Christians don't get this. I was really ranting about this to myself this last week. Christians need to see that the people around them are made in the image of God. You should care about them. You should look them in the eye. You should care about who they are. You should care about what they're feeling. And I don't think Christians are very good at that. And now you're in a non-Christian setting. You start doing that, the non-Christian world, that's a big deal. And, And I do think that earns the right to be heard. So love them by caring for them. Don't just take the floor to get your chance to talk. You know, listen well, care well, and pray for them before you go. And if Christ comes up, stand strong. Don't back down. If you want to talk about gender or gay marriage or whatever, you don't have to say much, but say what you need to say to make it clear that you stand with God on all that. And bring it back to the gospel whenever you can. Yeah, it's hard. Thank you so much, Pastor Mike, for doing this. It's been super helpful. Um, a lot of tools that we've been able to use in NAVMO 
And one of the situations which is not new to NAVMO, but when these ladies start to come and grasp the gospel, they have husbands who are completely opposed and not happy with their wife even exploring it. And so these women are afraid. They are hungry for truth, but they're afraid to make a leap because it's going to create huge problems in their marriage. How can we help them? Yeah. Help them by telling them that's exactly what happens. At least, and I do maybe too much preaching on that topic, but the fantasy of becoming a Christian, making everything better in your life is not true. It makes it harder. And Jesus said, I came to bring a sword and cause division within the family. We don't revel in that. We don't work toward that. We don't push toward that. It's like when it says the world's going to hate you. It's not like I'm trying to make that happen. Don't exacerbate that. I don't want to make a division in my family if I'm a wife becoming a Christian and but I know that that's what the Bible says is going to happen. We have to choose where our loyalty lies. And Christ says, if you love your kids more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your husband or your wife more than me, you're not worthy of me. And that's the kind of perspective a real call to conversion has. It has a call to say, count the cost. Luke 14, count the cost. Verse 33, so therefore none of you can be my disciples unless you give up everything you have. So we're telling them to count the cost. And then you want to remind them of things like speaking of the Coptics, right? Think of those Coptics got their heads chopped off. There are brothers and sisters around the world who when they choose to follow Christ do more than get icy receptions from their husband. They lose their life. So yes, Jesus said this is going to be costly. And one of the things it's going to cost you is it isn't going to improve your marriage. It's going to make your marriage harder. So be ready for that. Count the cost. Who starts to build a tower? Doesn't first count, calculate the cost. See if he has enough to complete it. Lest when he starts, he's not able to finish. Everyone ridicules him. Don't do that. Don't step into this because you think, yeah, this sounds like a good thing. You have to consider the cost. Matthew 19, rich young ruler. Give up everything you have. Goes away sad. And the way we do that, and I love the passage, the Mark account of that. He looked at him and he loved him. We say those things lovingly. We say those things lovingly like they're going to be our new sister in Christ and say, I love you, but it's going to be hard. And yeah, it's going to, it's going to be tough. And it's not helping when Joel Olstein and the rest of the world's out there saying, it's going to be better if you become a Christian. Everything will be great. It won't be great. It will be hard. But you got to suck it up and you got you to manage this and you got to be able to walk with Christ through this world. He promises to walk you through it. So let's do this. But yes, you're right. You're saying Christ is more important to me than a peaceful marriage. That is what you're saying to become a Christian. And you help them understand that without saying it with any joyful, gleeful, you know, I love bringing the bad weather forecast to you. We don't like it. Going to be a tornado. We want to say that sympathetically. But becoming a Christian in a non-Christian home is, especially when you're the wife, hard. But you know what? I say that and I say that I can think of men in our church with non-Christian wives. It's rough. It isn't just when you're when the wife, because you think of the gender roles in marriage, not because you got to be. There are men that are in massive pain because their non-Christian wife does not like their Lord and makes it hard. So it works both ways. So I just say that as a addendum to the fact that it's not just women that struggle in that situation. But be clear and tell them part of that is the church. Jesus said to his mother in Mark 3, I think I preached this this last week, when they came, if you look up eight verses earlier, they came to get him because they thought he was out of his mind. So Mary and the brothers of Christ show up and Jesus says, tell them my mother and brothers are the ones who know the will of God and do it. That's rough. To Mary you said that? That's exactly what he said. So you're saying that really you're going to probably have closer, at least spiritual relationships with your sisters in Christ than you may have with your husband, that you will have with your husband. I'm sorry. You become a Christian. Your husband's not a Christian. 
I want you to stay married. I want you to be a great wife. I want to pray for him. I want to win him, even by your behavior, First Peter 3. But it's going to be hard. And if you have a Christian spouse and you're in this room, you ought to be thankful for it because we have to deal with it all the time here on staff, all the time in the counseling room. And it's tough. And if you're in that situation, you know, praying for you. I just had a counseling appointment before I came up on the platform. Difficult situation. I said, you're, you're, you're walking through this with one hand tied behind your back. And that's really, really hard. And, and I want to tell you, Christ knows that pain. A lot of people in the church know that pain, but that's part of the package. Yeah, no way to change that, but you want to be gracious. And you know all the things you want to teach a wife to do that's in that situation, but be clear about the forecast. For the holidays, I got invitations to parties on condition that I should not be talking about Bible. Okay, so I did not go to couple, but then I said, no, this is no good. I should go. I went, and after telling a joke or two, I said... I was asked not to talk about Bible, so I am not going to talk about Bible. I knew what is going to happen. Right away, they started asking me why, why, and we talked about Bible for almost half an hour. It's great. (laughs) Yep, I've been there before. Hi, Pastor. Hi. Uh, I just kind of wanted to share, it's not just exactly, but my son-in-law, um, I call person to share the gospel, we used to go dirt bike ride, and I'd, I'd have him in the truck for about an hour and a half. He got out, he would hammer questions, we'd go back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, they uh, moved uh, to San Clemente and started attending your church. He attended this church eight years under your teaching. And, uh, I would ask my daughter, I'd say, Pastor, oh man, has he, has he preached on Romans yet? What about, you know, what about, uh, you know, Greg, has he heard him on Romans? Uh, anyway, so it took eight years, and all of a sudden, the light went on, and he accepted Christ. And um, it's wonderful now, because the whole family is all Christians, we have a great conversation. But his mom and dad are Zen Buddhists. Mm-hmm. One's a professor, one was a school teacher for 30 years. Um, I've been told, now I've been living with them for a year and a half, so when they come out, of course, my daughter tells me, look, <laughs> these are hard leftists, uh, dem- well, anyway. Won't go there. But anyway, <laughs> bottom line is, Dad, be careful what you say. So I go, well, am I going to say grace this Thanksgiving? Yeah. I'm not holding back. I'm not going to hold back. So get up, walk away, or whatever. And I found out that it did kind of break the ice. Because like you said about the church, I wasn't going to change my way of dealing with the family because they attended. So I think that's that's always best to do that. So eight years under your teaching, and uh, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. Just never know. Right. We don't want to give up, but also there's a point. Today I was on a train from uh, Chatsworth, the valley out here, and half of the trip to L.A. Station was a 19-year-old uh, Navy uh, guy in the Navy. He's only 19 years old. Just got off the aircraft carrier and was going home with his folks. So we talked. I gave him a track. I, I uh, gave him my phone number, my email. I said, hey, email me. Get back on, you know, whatever. So I hope to follow up. With when he got off, Kearney said, of course, this guy went on 15 minutes straight. He's done everything. Greatest it ever was. This went on and on. And really, the way I slowed him down is I just took my Bible out and opened it up. Saw that. Game over. Mm. So you never know. Yeah. Just give them. Right. Well, keep but, at it. Yeah, no, that's great. And that's good to hear. And it's an encouragement to some people that have been sitting there with loved ones coming to church in tow for five, six, seven years. You never know what it will take and how long it'll take. 
I've told stories in our church of gals that have prayed for and have interaction with that didn't come every week for their lost husband for 50 years, right? And and to have them come to Christ after 50 years of marriage. And uh, some I was teaching to and had for over two decades. So God can do great things. You never know. And you're right. Shouldn't give up in praying for these people. Absolutely. Hi, Pastor Mike. I uh, work in a high school and I come across a ton of gender fluid, transgender, homosexual kids, and work with a staff who's very open to that. So we get into a lot of conversations. And when you, um, on Compass Night, we're talking about avoiding common mistakes. One was uh, don't compromise on God's sovereignty. And something that comes up a lot is he was born that way. She was born that way. How can you judge that? They're feeling that. This kid's going to commit suicide because they're gender confused. And you're saying that kid is in sin. Yeah. And so I just want a little clarity on, you know, how do I deal with that? Just basics of how I can answer that. Yeah. Well, the sovereignty of God obviously doesn't give us any excuses for sinful decisions and sinful choices. I think the stat I was quoted today is that up to 30% of the people now in America will say they're confused about their gender. This is an absurd, an absurd statistic. And the reason it's so high is because it's the cool thing to do. Don't tell me you're killing yourself because I'm saying your, your, your decisions are sinful. Nothing could make me more popular than for me to come out as gender fluid tonight. You may not like it, but I guarantee I could fill up auditoriums and speak on that topic as a pro-gender fluid person. So I understand there's nothing more hip and cool than this issue. And for young people in particular, and I don't know what the stats are with young people, to say, you know what, I am questioning my sexuality. Born that way. Back to the Lady Gaga philosophy of, of sin. I don't have any concern one way or the other how you were born. I really don't. Because if it's wrong and storing up for yourself wrath on the day of God's wrath, uh, you've got to realize that you may have a harder struggle to obey than other people. If Jeffrey Dahmer says, I am born this way to, can- to rape men and cannibalize them, we're not going to go, oh, let's sing Lady Gaga to you because you're born that way. Even though we're at a stage in our culture where the victim mentality with the syndromes and the disorders allow me to say, that's the reason I do this. And it infects our church. This is the reason I'm like that. This is the reason I do that. You need to realize that's the satanic lie of stripping dignity from humanity. God has granted us in, in the, the human ontology of being made in the image of God that we are beings that make volitional decisions. And some decisions are harder to make than others. Some I have a predisposition to do something that you don't have a predisposition to do. I guarantee you, your set of temptations, though they're common to man, as 1 Corinthians 10 says, they're not the same as mine. And my temptations are different than your temptations. But the question is, is this really wrong? And what we are saying as Christians who believe in divine revelation, and there's good reasonable reasons to believe in divine revelation, this is what the Bible says. If raping men and cannibalizing their bodies and keeping their heads in the freezer is wrong, then I don't care what your predisposition is. You need to do whatever it takes. You may have to work harder not to eat dead bodies than I do, but you better stop. Not only because it's destructive to humanity, and the homosexuals will say, well, this is not destructive to anyone. This is too consenting adult. Again, you're right. That may not hurt me. You may not be wanting to rape me or cannibalize me. But you know what? You are, Romans 2, storing up for yourself judgment. God's wrath 
and his just anger toward your sin, you will pay for that. The most loving thing I can say is, you know what? You need to stop doing that. And so, yeah, I'm going to call it sin. You watch. This will get me arrested. This will get churches losing their tax-exempt status. This is the next shoe to fall. For them to ask me on camera, does Dr. Mike Fabares say that homosexuality is a sin? And I'm going to say, I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. I'm a preacher of the Bible. I have to say what the Bible says. I cannot change Christianity. Christianity has for 2,000 years been teaching what Jesus taught. In the beginning, he created them male and female, Matthew 19, and that is what I teach. So yeah, but you know what? Don't blame me for that. I'm the messenger. And I recognize they will blame me for that. Well, so be it. And that's when you turn the other cheek. That's when you submit. It's not about self-protection of me shooting someone when you sneak into my house and try and rip me off. There's laws in the scripture that govern that. It's me saying, you want to drag me to jail because of my commitment to Christ and his word? Okay. I put my wrists out for that. That's the picture in scripture of being open and willing to be persecuted for the faith is I'm making a statement for Christ. And the statement for Christ is, yes, you were born a particular gender. That is your gender assigned by God. It's not something that someone has foisted upon you because they're patriarchal fundamentalists trying to put on your birth certificate something that's going to encase you into some slavery of your gender. It is what God has made you. You want to fight against that? You're fighting against God. And in that, you are in trouble with God. If that somehow resonates with your conscience, and in the rare case that this is your conscience that you're so stricken by that leads you to self-destruction, that's certainly not my fault. I'm under the same strictures of the Bible as you are. All I can say is we're all under the law of God. And the law of God says what you're doing is wrong. Whether I'm raping people or whether I am trying to fight the gender God has assigned me or whether I am being punished for stealing. These, these are God's dictates and commands. We can't change them. But you watch. Church is going to get a lot smaller. And I say church. Bible teaching churches that are going to stay faithful to Scripture are going to get smaller. People can't take, can't take it right now. I mean, right now... Churches and denominations and seminaries are falling at a precipitous rate saying, I no longer affirm what the Bible has to say about marriage, about sexuality. This is the thing. And and our culture will not have us be neutral on this. And you can't be neutral on this. I'm sorry. Does that mean I can't work in a school district that has policies about this? No, I can until they fire me, but I can't get up and affirm what you're telling me to affirm. I can't. I cannot do that. You want me to say, well, if some kid's confused about their gender, I got to send them down the hallway? Fine. But I'm not going to be the guy down the hallway that's going to tell you you're right in doing what you're doing, in storing up for yourself wrath for the day of God. I'm sorry, I can't. This is what the Bible says. And you're going to have pastors, denominations, churches, Christian colleges, and seminaries going, I'm not willing to stand up to that. I don't want to be persecuted for this. Can't we just change it? Go back even 50 years and say, Can we even imagine the conversations we're having in denominations today about this topic? It would have been absurd. Barack Obama couldn't even say in his first campaign that homosexual marriage was right or he wouldn't have gotten elected. Think about that. Here was the liberal apex of our Democratic Party at that day, at least the electable apex of it, and he couldn't say it. He sat on Saddleback stage over here a few miles down the road and said, I believe in traditional marriage. That's what he said because he knew that's where we were as a culture. Today, you can't say what he said as a Republican and get elected in a lot of places. This is where we're at. So, yeah, all I'm going to tell you is the truth is the truth. Just like if you said I had a propensity to steal, I'm going to say don't steal. And if you say, well, I feel guilty. If you tell me a stealing sin, I might go out and kill myself. Don't kill yourself. That would be terrible. You'd be adding more sin. to You'd become a murderer. Don't kill yourself. 
I'm totally against suicide. Let me go on the record right now. I'm against suicide. And I'm going to tell you, there's hope in the gospel for you to repent. And even if your lifelong struggle is some sexual sin, guess what? Welcome to the club because everyone's struggling with something to do the right thing. So if the Christian, if the Christian life is supposed to be easy, you're reading a different Bible than us. It's going to be hard. And your struggle is going to be different than my struggle. I mean, but that's, that's the struggle we face. Sanctification and non-Christians, I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to change my definition of sin. What happens when it's whatever's next? I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter what's next. When the culture says this is the right thing and your Bible says it's the wrong thing, change your Bible. Again, then you've redefined Christianity. And all I'm saying is I'm supposed to be a Christian preacher. You're supposed to be Christian. We're supposed to go to what God has revealed and stick with it. And we're going to stick with it even if we get shut down, even if we get put in jail. At least I am. This is our commitment because one day I'm going to stand before God. You want to be on the right side of history? The real history that matters is when we stand before God and get judged. And some of us don't have the guts to say that. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I can do evangelism and have someone turn that question on me. And I know right now you're going to be mad. You might even call the people around you to point me out and mock me. But who needs courage today? Do I need courage to come out as a transgender tonight? Or do I need courage to say transgenderism is sin? Which, need, which takes more courage in our day? Don't tell me that this is something courageous for you to do. Nothing could make me more popular. I've said that and anecdotally many times. That's, that's, if my teenager comes out on YouTube and declares that he's a homosexual, he will get rave reviews. If my teenager goes on YouTube and in a sermon to high schoolers, junior higher, says homosexuality is a sin, he's going to be castigated. Read the comments. And all I'm telling you is, you're telling me you're the victim here? Really? You're the victim here. When you get 30% of our people in the country saying, I don't even know what I am in terms of my gender. Yeah. No, I know that's hard. And I, I wound up about that just because Christians better put on their crash helmet because this is where we're going. And some industries, even in medical industries, right? Think about it, about abortion. I can't even believe we're still at the place we are with abortion in our country right now. Think about where we're at. You can't tell me with all the technology we have that we can't, by the common grace of God, see that killing an unborn child is murder. You can't see that. And yet our country will still, you can't find, the only candidate that will run for president, that at least, is is he going to be on our church leadership team? No. But think about this for a second. The only candidate we will have that will ever say abortion is wrong, I think you only got one choice. Think about that. And I'm not here to talk politics, but you started it. You said the D word. But... I'm just telling you, it isn't about, yeah, just abortion, homosexuality, gender issues. This is the world we live in. Hey, our forefathers had other issues. When you were in the New Testament times, if you didn't put a pinch of of incense on the fire and say Caesar is Lord, you could lose your life. You could lose your property. You could lose your job. We have to now go to the altar and say, if if you are gender fluid, well, then that's okay. I have to do that. And if I don't do that, well, then I'm in trouble. They're leaning over the rails of heaven saying, well, we had our thing too, man. You got your thing. And in America, we've been far too insulated. Talk about Coptic Christians. Those that really are faithful to Christ, they pay with their lives and we're going to pay with our jobs and who knows what it'll be next. And I don't mean to be a doom and gloomer, not a radio talk show host, but I'm telling you, this is the world we're living in. And I know it's hard and I sympathize with you. And at some point they may ask you to quit or leave or that's called being fired, I guess. But that may happen. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry, but yeah, okay. We've got one in the back, and we got no more. You guys are getting tired, huh? This will be the last one, then I guess we don't have any more. I'm uh, a full-time working mom, and I don't, I, my life is pretty scheduled, so I've been pretty convicted tonight that I need more time to pull. 
Um, one of the things I've tried to do at work is um, I, I work in a pretty um, professional environment and there's just not a lot of chit chat. So like we talked about the sermons about, you know, when you're maybe at the lunchroom and, um, and something will come up about heaven or hell, that has never happened. Mm. I would love it if it did, if anybody wants to come have lunch. Um, I am interested in kind of knowing more in kind of the work situation that Kathy's talking about. Like, how can you start those conversations? If someone talks to me at work about, what did I do this weekend? I always bring up church and mm-hmm. I've never had anybody ask me about it. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody asks me about their home situation, you know, I'll tell them about our faith. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, a lot of times it feels like the conversation goes off to another direction. It just doesn't, I never really get much traction. Yeah. Um, and so I, I realize that a work environment is a little bit different than like a mom in a park where you can have a more maybe casual conversation or you can get more in depth. A lot of it's pretty surfacey. So how can I change that when those are the people that are in my life? Is your workplace a large workplace? It's very large. Okay. Have, yeah. Let me ask you this. Campus. How yeah. many other working moms do you know by name in your office? Uh, most of the people are older in my office. Do you know any working moms at your office? Yeah. Okay, I would start right there. I would say there's a demographic I share with some coworkers. We don't have lunch room chit chat about anything, but I know they have the same stage of life that I have. Their kids want to go to, you know, jump and jamboree or big air. And so, you know, my kids want to do that. So I'm going to purposefully build a bridge with a non-Christian and I'm going to say, let's spend some time together. You go to that place where they're jumping around on those trampolines, moms sit there on the sidelines. I don't know, bored out of your mind. I don't know what you're doing there, but what a great opportunity to say, let, Hey, I got an extra ticket for this that you went out and purchased the day before. And why don't you have your kids come to this thing with me? And you know, we do something out of work. So they're in jeans and they're there in their tennis shoes and you get them out of the context of work and you get a chance to talk to them about stuff that's important. Maybe it goes nowhere. When you bring up Christ, they go, I don't want to go to this, you know, anything with this gal again. But my suggestion, just pastorally, is find someone in the stage of life that you're in, build a bridge, purposefully get them outside of the office. And for guys, I would say, take them golfing, take them to a ball game and sit next to them with a hot dog and get to know them in that context and purposefully seek to get around to spiritual things. And I would say the same thing to you. And the easiest bridge is someone that shares your life stage. Yeah, that's all right. I yeah. have to be right on top of her or she could elope. So how do I translate that into something? Because I feel like that my whole life is tethered to my five-year-old. Right. Well, you're going to have to have a team approach to your five-year-old so that you can break free from your five-year-old, whether it's for a trip to some place, whether it's a walk in the park, whether it's a barbecue that your husband is having in the backyard that you invite your coworker to. You're going to have to have someone that's in your life, in your circle, that can deal with your disabled child for a two-hour span so that you can have a cross-the-table conversation. You have to share the responsibility. And I know it's hard. I understand what it, it's difficult. And I know it can be to where you feel like it's a full-time thing, but I just think you got a team. You got to have someone in your small group who you're going to say, listen, I'm trying to build a bridge with a non-Christian. I just need you to do something here, even if it's in the other room down the hall, so that I can have a conversation here and we can chit-chat about where did you meet, where did you come from, where did you grow up, let's talk about life, and then let's talk about spiritual things. You ever gone to church? What do you think of God? What do you think is going to happen when you die? And you've just 
given a context for the gospel. Don't allow the demands of your child, which is your first priority. I get that. To not give you an opportunity to talk to people about Christ. And that's going to be... I bet there's people in this room right now that just heard that story that said special needs. I've got some experience with that. I would love to talk to you afterwards because I could deal with your child for two hours, even if it was 50 feet away down the hall in a playroom. I bet someone here is probably going to come up to you and talk to you about that because that's what it takes. It's going to take a team approach to dealing with mother responsibilities so you can have a gal-to-gal conversation with a coworker. Okay. All right. Hi, Pastor Michael. Hi. Um, if you would please uh, speak on the difference between God's revealed will and God's decreed will and trusting in his sovereignty. Yeah. Well, the Bible says there are things that God wants, and that's the word will. We talk about the will of God. It is the will of God, Second Peter 3, that everyone come to repentance. That's the will of God. But I know that God works everything after the counsel of his will, even the, the, the wicked for the day of destruction. So I know there must be a decreed will of God that everything works out after. So I know this. The will of God is that there won't be everyone that's saved. And the will of God is that everyone comes to repentance. So what is that? There must be two wills of God. A will that says, this is what I want. And in terms of this, is, this would be the desire that I would want. This is the revealed will of God. Don't lie. That's his will. But then there's lying involved, even with uh, the Hebrew midwives. It ends up working out to the counsel of his will, in that case very clearly, to save the Israelite babies. So lying that he does not want ends up being something he wants to accomplish his will in this context. That's the decreed will of God. Sometimes we call that the secret will of God. And then we have the revealed will of God. When God has sees people die, he's a part of that. The day of your death determined by God, that is the will of God. Would you agree the day you die is the will of God? Think about that. How about the death of a non-Christian? Well, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. No delight. That is not what he wants. That's not his desired will. But it is decreed will the day that that non-Christian dies and faces the judgment and gets told, depart from me, I never knew you. So there is a decreed will of God. That's the, the, the working out of all of history under the decree of what God has said, what he has planned. That's what he wants. That's not always what pleases him. In the sense that this is what I would like. I don't want anyone to lie. I don't want anyone to die. I don't want anyone to sin. I don't want anyone to do anything wrong. I don't ever want someone to take a righteous request and say no to it. And yet Pharaoh was raised up for this very purpose. To say no, 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 no. So that God could display his great power. And write the first five books of the Bible with miraculous events around that time. So that we could have the Pentateuch that they're still reading in synagogues today. That is part of God's will, the decreed will of God, the secret will of God. And it worked itself out by people disobeying God's revealed will. That's the two wills of God. If you want to read more on that, and of course, John uh, John Piper does it more eloquently than I could ever do in five minutes, but John Piper's got a chapter in Tom Schreiner's book called Still Sovereign. It's called The Two Wills of God, chapter 8, chapter 12. I forget what chapter it is. But that chapter is going to help differentiate those two wills, Still Sovereign, the, the uh, editor is Schreiner, who, by the way, is coming here in two weeks to preach for us from Southern Seminary, great premier, one of the greatest theologians of our day. He'll be here on this platform, Lord willing. He'd want me to say Lord willing if it's the decreed will of God. So that book, Still Sovereign, it's in our bookstore. It's also, I'm sure, electronically available. I'm sure I'm assuming. And the chapter, and it's, uh, it's a uh, compilation of authors, but uh, Dr. Piper, John Piper, writes the uh, chapter on the two wills of God. It's well done, very logical. It's a good explanation of what I tried to summarize right there. All right, Compass Night lives on. We have 
If you go to pastormike.com, it will take you to the the landing page of Focal Point. If you click on Focal Point U, you can have free audio and video and PowerPoint slides and worksheets of 13 years of Compass Night. I've covered every division of theology. There are 150 plus hours of lectures in our divisions of theology that we've done. I've done 37 hours of teaching on Old Testament survey and New Testament survey. Every book of the Bible is covered, outlines, themes, biblical theology that we deal with there. We've covered the major cults and world religions for 18 hours of lecture. It's all free. We've done now, including tonight, uh, 19 plus hours of apologetics. There's 151 sessions there. There's 226 hours of lectures. You can download all the worksheets and all the material is there. I say all that because I was forced to say all that to you, not to do any of this because I don't feel good about this announcement at all. But here is Compass Night for you that I have done a labor of love for you guys. And it's there. And so I want you to consume it. I want you to go back and reconsume it. I want you to point people to it. But we will not be having Compass Night in the foreseeable future. Compass Night is going to be replaced by the great work that's going to go on across the street at 145. And it's going to be a little step above. And right now we don't have you being able to audit the classes. That may change as we get going. We're pushing uh, 100 plus applicants, I think right now, or close to for the school. We hope to start with at least 100 students in the fall, but that will cover all the kinds of things you would get at a Compass Night, only there's going to be some testing of your knowledge and papers and some books. And, you know, you don't have to be an A student, but we need you to matriculate through the program or at least a class. You could take one class and be a part of what's going on at CBI. We've got great people coming in. And if you, if you want to get your feet wet on CBI, I would invite you. Dr. Bruce Ware from Southern Seminary is doing a class on the Trinity. I talk about you being able to deal with the Jehovah Witness at your door. You better know how to understand what it means that there's God in one essence in three persons. Dr. Ware is going to come and teach on that. If you don't sign up for any other class, sign up for that one. Now you can sign up for credit for that one, which means you will do the papers and the books. But that's the one class we'll have with the visiting professors coming in. Be really nice to Tom Schreiner. Uh, we want to get him signed up down the road as well. So he's here in a couple of weeks preaching for us. But be smile really big for him. So he says, man, I really want to teach at that CBI school. And we'll hopefully fly him in to do the same kind of thing that Bruce Ware is doing in a modular class, we call it. That's the one class that we will have you be able to audit. You can come in and do that class and not, not have to do the papers or the books. But you can take that very same class, and Dr. Ware has papers and books that have to be read. He's taught this class many times, and it'll be a great live class that he teaches for us. So even if you're saying, well, oh, I don't want to do CBI, at least sign up to audit that one class. The other classes, you have to sign up for to, to be a student. I say that because I'm being forced by the wise people in my life to, to let CBI supplant Compass Night. I don't want to do this. I want to keep going, but I can't because I'll be in big trouble with all the important people in my life. Right now, with the barrel of the, of the shotgun in my back, I'm going to say this is the last compass night that we know of, and it's been a great 13-year run for me. I've enjoyed it, but if you haven't heard all 226 hours, um, get at tw- the year 2020. You do one hour a day and get through a lot of the year next year 
If you did one a week, it would take you, what, three and a half years to get through Compass Night, just digesting one lecture a week. Okay, what is your question? Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 And then I get to reteach it. You want me to reteach it again? I do have it ready. But it, not only is it ready, I can do it exactly the way I did it before just by you clicking on each lecture. It will be exact. And while you might argue that perhaps you'll be better at it now than you were 13 years ago, that may be true, but unfortunately, I'm on the board of trustees at Moody now. I'm on the board of the NRB. I'm, I'm doing a good bit of traveling. I'm the president now of CBI. I'll be teaching in CBI. I just, I need to pull back from Compass Night. And that's a tearful thing for me to say. I'm not a guy that cries, but that is not an easy decision for me. But you know what? We got a great thing going with CBI. Please avail yourself to that. And if you just think that's beyond your reach, please go back and deal with this. I did not do any of the math on this, by the way. I just want to let you know. You can thank Ruth Staggs for that. Ruth, you'd be mad at me if I just changed my mind right now and say I'm going to do another, another semester. Can you be sure to talk to Asha up here about your decision? All right. I love you guys. I love our church. I love what's going on. I love what's happening at CBI. Please pray for CBI. You know, we just got back, Mark and uh, John and I, Mark Kelly and and John Goodrich. John Goodrich is our academic director. And of course, Mark's heading up as the director of the school. We got back from the Evangelical Theological Society in San Diego, which I think I mentioned at one point the week I got back. But there's a lot of great academics around the country that are very excited about us starting a training institute that is focused on practical church ministry and good Bible knowledge. So I just think it couldn't have started without a better reputation among people that I think have been doing this. I sat for about an hour with Dr. Moeller one-on-one, and, and he's excited about CBI, which he's, by the way, coming back to preach to us on the weekend in February. But there's a lot of great people in our country that know how to do what we're doing better even than we've done it, and they're very excited about what we're, ha- what we're doing here. So be, be excited with me that Compass Night's not going to happen next year, please, so that I can feel better about it. My, what's that? We're going to have what? A wa- oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to have a wana. Wana's going to go upward and onward. Pastor Mike can go downward and be done with Compass Night, which I don't like. Did I mention that I'm sad about it? All right. What, what's that? We'll have CBI. Thank you. That's exactly, Teresa, what you need to say. We will have CBI. There's no need for me on this platform on Thursday nights. All right. Well, let me pray for you and let you go. It's been a great run for 13 years in the last 13 weeks as well, or 13 sessions at least. Let's pray. Got to know, I feel this way at the end of every semester. There's just so much more we could have dealt with in this series, but uh, I hope it was a good foundation, a good starting place. Even this feeling I have now is a good reason for CBI. I know that each of these topics could be covered more thoroughly. There's books that would have been so helpful for all of our students to have read. And God, I just pray that there would be such a great need that is met and a mastery of material that comes with the launch of CBI here in just a few short weeks. So God bless that school. May it outlive all of us. May it be thriving and focused on an unabashed and uncompromising stand on your inerrant word until you send your son back to get the church. God, let the vision that this generation has, and frankly, it's such an expensive thing to do. Uh, So much money we're having to spend, not just for the school, but for all that goes on related to training leaders and planning churches. But may our sacrifice be something that our grandkids and great-grandkids can benefit from 
as the church continues on until your son's return. We pray that's this week. We pray it's tonight. But if it's not, God, you've certainly told us in your word to plan uh, for the future, to be wise about planning and storing up for the future. And so we want to do that, spiritually speaking, by starting this uh, school. And we pray it would be a great place to meet the needs, a lot of the needs that have been at least partially met by Compass Nights in the past. So thank you, God, for the grace of you allowing us to do hundreds of hours of teaching from this platform on these topics. And I do pray, as we hear from people across the country, that it would continue to build up people and bless them and even save them. It's been interesting to hear how people have been saved by listening to Compass Night, of all things. But I pray, God, that you would continue to use it in that way and do good things as we move from this level of ministry to something that's even more, uh, I hope, effectual in seeing the church built up and strengthened. Thanks for this team, for them. It's an encouragement to me to come here and not have no one show up. It's great to have a good core group that comes every week and their encouragement of wanting to learn. And I just pray you'd bless them for their enthusiastic listening. And I pray that their growth this semester would pay off as we share our our faith with other people in the weeks and and months to come, particularly next week as we think about, or the week after that, I guess, when we start thinking about our contact with people during the Christmas season. Give us open doors for evangelistic uh, work and good, gentle and respectful responses, but firm ones and good ones, tight, clean, cogent responses to the questions people have about the reason for the hope that's in us. So dismiss us now, God, I pray with your blessing and the goodness of your grace upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.